Well, hey guys, uh, as we come to 1 Kings chapter 18, uh, we've been throwing down the gauntlet. And uh, today I want to talk to you about throwing down the gauntlet against false teaching. Uh, let's know what we know and know what we believe and let's stand firm with it. When we look at 1 Kings chapter 18 here in a few minutes, uh, we're going to see that that's exactly what Elijah does. That you have Ahab and Jezebel. Uh, Ahab has said, and I'll read some more of this here in a bit, that he did more evil in the sight of the Lord than any of the other kings before him. And uh, Jezebel was a Sidonian uh, princess uh, that he married and almost immediately built a, um, uh, built a temple so she could worship there in the capital city in Samaria. Uh, she could worship her bell and built an Asherah pole and did all of that stuff. And she immediately started killing the prophets of God and uh, had an incredible influence. Well, if you go back um, really uh, uh, from us uh, back to 1507, uh, a guy named Martin Luther uh, was, uh, was made a priest. And after being made a priest, about 10 years after that, uh, he began to notice some of, the, uh, some of the theological heresies, some of the abuses that he saw uh, in the Catholic Church. And he nailed a 95 Theses uh, his 95 basically statements against the Catholic Church on the wall and the door uh, of the church there in Wittenberg. Uh, a couple of years after that, uh, they brought Martin Luther, who ended up starting the Reformation, they brought him before what was referred to as the Diet of Worms. Okay, now a lot of you guys are sitting there going, hey, I remember as a kid I ate worms. Um, that's not what it means. Worms is a place and a diet is called an assembly. German, it's German for assembly, assembly of all the people. And basically, the difference between where you and I are in churches, I uh, had, had, a, had, a, had a brother share a story about being in another church and coming to this church. Unlike today, where you and I could just change churches whenever we wanted to, uh, basically the theology of the Catholic Church at that time was, if you were a part of the Catholic Church, you were going to heaven. If you were not a part of the Catholic Church, you were going to hell. It was just that simple. And so when Martin Luther basically nailed his 95 theses, his charges against the indulgence, and they were teaching things like if you'll make a pilgrimage basically to Rome and if you'll throw some money in the coffers for uh, St. Peter's Cathedral or some other chapel they were building, it would remove sins. Basically, if you would give some money to Rome, and if you would do this, and if you would say some prayers, and you know, if you had a if you had a bad uncle like most of us would be, who wasn't good enough to go straight from uh, earth to heaven, you would get stuck in pur purgatory. But if I gave some money, I could buy uh, uh, Uncle Billy Bob uh, out of purgatory, and he could move on through. And all of those indulgences were, were what they referred to. Martin Luther said that's wrong. He says beyond that, if the Pope be infallible has the power and the ability to forgive sins as a fallible pope, he ought to forgive all sins because he's a sinner. And so he basically nailed what was, recalled, what was called the 95 Thesis on the, door at the, uh, on the door there in Wittenberg. That started what we referred to as Reformation. Now, about 10 years later, uh, when the Catholic Church said, we're about sick and tired of uh, this Martin Luther character, they bring him to what is referred to as the Assembly at Worms, or the uh, Diet of Worms. It's referred to the Diet of Worms, the Assembly of Worms. And they basically lay all of his books and all of his writings out before him. And they are basically about to brand him as a heretic. And he's got a choice to make. I'm either going to back away or I'm going to stand firm. Standing firm in that point, in that day, meant he was going to be excommunicated from the church would meant for all intents and purposes, he was going to hell. 
but he had been studying Scripture and reading Scripture, and this is a reenactment of the stand he took when they asked him to recant, recant his works. Now, on the table in front of him, you will see uh, his, his books. He re basically wrote three different kind of books. Uh, some of his books were just on personal piety of serving God and what prayer means and what fasting means and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, that, that was some of the books. And uh, basically, he says, I, I can't, you know, I, I basically, I can't retract those. My others are, uh, are basically theological works. And he goes, I believe they are correct because I've studied God's Word. And what happened, part of the problem is uh, the history of the church is they begin to look at history, kind of like our court system does right now, is they look at previous courts instead of the Constitution. You understand the, the whole idea is the Catholic Church began to get further and further away from the Bible and so the new decisions were not made going back to the Bible. They were made going back to a previous pope's decision or a previous cardinal's decision. And so they got so far off course. Well, Martin Luther went back and began to, began to read Scripture in their original languages and started saying, wait, we're saved by faith, not faith plus communion, plus the church, plus good works, plus throwing some money in the coffers, plus doing this and plus doing that. We're saved by faith. He goes, listen, Scripture is our authority, not Scripture plus the Pope, plus this council, plus this group. plus. And so he took them all the way back to Scripture. So the, the second category was basically his theological works. They're asking him to recant. And the third were basically uh, uh, some books that he began to attack certain people. And you'll, you'll hear in here, he says, the only thing that I will apologize for and recant is that probably my attacks on people were a little harsh. And so uh, this is kind of a reenactment of what took place. And let me tell you what, what took place here, uh, if he's wrong, he knows that I am going to hell, all right? And if you go a couple of, a couple of centuries before this, John Huss had this same conversation, and they burned him at the stake right after this meeting. So good news, Martin Luther uh, didn't get killed after this. Uh, the prince uh, there in Wittenberg protected him. But here's his stand, and this is kind of a reenactment. Order in the hall! Order! Order! Martin Luther, are you the author of these writings? I am. Do you recant what you have written here? I cannot renounce all of my works because they are not all the same. First are those books in which I have described Christian faith and life so simply that even my opponents have admitted that these works are useful. To renounce these writings would be unthinkable, for that would be to renounce accepted Christian truths. He is not here to make speeches. Only to answer. The second group of my work is directed against the foul doctrine and evil living of the Pope's past and present. No! Through the laws of the Pope and the doctrines of men, the consciences of the faithful have been miserably vexed and flayed. If I recant these books, I will do nothing but add strength to tyranny and open not just the windows but also the doors to this great ungodliness. He has condemned himself. In the third group, 
I have written against private persons and individuals who uphold Roman tyranny and have attacked my own efforts to encourage piety to Christ. I confess that I've written too harshly. I am but a man and I can err. Only let my errors be proven by scripture. And I will revoke my work and throw my books into the fire. You have not answered the question. You, Martin Luther, will not draw into doubt those things which the Catholic Church has judged already. Things that have passed into usage, right, and observance. The faith that Christ, the most perfect lawgiver, ordained. The faith the martyrs strengthened with their blood. You wait in vain for a disputation over things that you are obligated to believe. Now give your answer. Yes or no? Will you recant or will you not? Since your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply, I will answer. Unless I am convinced by scripture and by plain reason and not by popes and councils who have so often contradicted themselves, my conscience is captive to the word of God. To go against conscience is neither right nor safe. I cannot, and I will not, recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. If you go all the way back, that's kind of a, that was kind of the turning point, is uh, that Martin Luther basically said, here I stand. He goes, I, I stand with Scripture and uh, my conscience alone. And he goes, I am willing to be corrected, but if you correct me, correct me with Scripture. Don't correct me with the previous pope or a previous council or something else in church tradition. And that's really when we say kind of uh, sola scriptura, Bible alone is our authority for faith and practice. Now, uh, we always have to fight against that, right? We always have to fight against uh, church tradition. Because I can tell you when, uh, when I came to this church 23 and a half years ago, they, they had a couple of church traditions uh, that, that seemed to be treated as equal as Scripture. Uh, because that's the way we've always been doing it, right? And so we always want to be careful that uh, we go back to God's Word. That we make sure that when we're looking uh, at, uh, at things we do and how we operate in a church, uh, what is Scripture and what does Scripture say? Primarily as it relates to doctrine and theology. 
then where there's freedom and practice, let it be and let it happen. And one of the things that you mentioned is we went to a bunch of churches and some of them were weird out there. There is a reality within the church, uh, uh, especially in the Baptist convention, that um, the way you do church, the way you practice church, can vary widely from church to church. I mean, some churches could be so traditional, even traditional churches would laugh at them. All right. Other churches can be so contemporary that even contemporary churches would laugh at them, and anywhere in between. Those things are called practice. The reality, the key that should hold us all together is God's Word, is, is doctrine and God's Word. And so that's where we always want to go back to. As we come to 1 Kings chapter 18, let me give you a little historical setting. My guess is most of you uh, know the story, or at least can remember the story of uh, Elijah and the prophets of Baal against Mount Carmel. But Sometime before that, you had, uh, you had Ahab uh, who came in, and, and as, uh, as the king, uh, he, it is said when he finished his reign that he did more evil than all the kings before him. Now, let me tell you what. To say that he did more evil than all the kings before or after him means that he did a lot of evil because there were some amazingly evil kings, all right? And Jezebel is who he married. She was a Sidonian princess, and basically he married as soon as he married her, uh, following Solomon's footsteps. Uh, he began to build for her a, a place to worship right there in the city, in the, in the capital city of Samaria. And if you journey forward into the New Testament, remember Samaria is not a, a place that the Jews thought highly of, and part of that is, goes all the way back to this season and this time. And so uh, uh, Ahab builds her basically a temple so she can worship Baal right there uh, in the capital city. Uh, if you look at the beginning of 1 Kings chapter 18, Jezebel is trying to kill all these prophets of God who are going to Ahab and going to Jezebel and saying, hey, what y'all are doing is wrong. We were told to come into the promised land and not chase after foreign gods and not intermarry, and that's exactly what you're doing. Well, guess what? Jezebel was that woman that was leading Ahab to go after foreign gods. And so what was her response? Kill the prophets of God, right? So she started having them killed, all the prophets of God. If you look, there was a guy named Obadiah who was also a prophet. Obadiah at the beginning of, uh, of chapter 18 in 1 Kings. He has actually taken these prophets and he's hiding them in caves and he's feeding them and pretty much all he's giving them is food and water and food and water. Now, Elijah, before Mount Carmel, was so disgusted with what was going on in Israel that he prayed that God would basically bring a drought to bring them to their knees. And so as Elijah shows up to Ahab, Ahab refers to Elijah as you troubler of Israel. And it's kind of interesting, guess, guess who's caused all the trouble? It's Ahab and Jezebel, right? Because they weren't following God. What happens when Elijah shows up? The king immediately points at Elijah and says, you're the troubler of Israel. Now, Elijah immediately corrects him and says, no, 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 no. I'm not the troubler of Israel. You are. But it's not that uncommon, and we can see it even today, that uh, when things begin to go wrong and all of a sudden someone calls out sin as sin, who do they blame? They blame the prophet. They blame the believer. They blame the Christian. They blame you and me when we try to stand for what is right. Uh, and point out which is wrong. They blame us for causing the trouble. No, we're just pointing out that which is right and that which is wrong. So it happens today just like it happens then. Now, when, when you come to false religion, if we're going to throw down the gauntlet against false teaching and false religion, one of the, re, one of the things that made Baal worship 
so particularly uh, appalling to God is because, first of all, it, it broke the very first commandment. Remember the Ten Commandments? Man, you're to love the Lord our God. I mean, you are to hold Him up as number one. God is not number two in anybody's life. You are to love Him and worship Him and worship Him only. Well, Jezebel and Ahab were leading the children of Israel to say, Hey, worship God, but go ahead and worship Baal. Worship God, but worship Baal. I mean, God says, we're not going to have any of that, all right? So when you come to 1 Kings chapter 18, this is Elijah basically calling for the children of Israel. Now, although Jezebel's mind was not divided, we talked a couple of weeks ago about a, a double mind, um, Ahab's mind may have been a little bit divided. He might have been on the fence, I'm going to worship God, I'm going to worship uh, Baal a little bit. It was, the, it was the children of Israel that were kind of confused. Does that make sense? They were like, well, you know, we, we, see, we see the temple to Baal here in the capital city of Samaria, but we also see the altar to our God. Which one should we worship? And probably, let's be honest, guys, they probably did a lot of what you and I do. On Sundays, we come in and worship God, and we worship Him, him with a whole heart. But perhaps on Monday and Tuesday, we begin to worship at the altar of money. And then sometime a little later in the week, we worship at the altar of our flesh, right? And then sometime later in the week, we uh, uh, worship at the altar of something else. We would not say that we no longer worship God, would we? But we find ourselves living as though we've forgotten what we said on Sunday. Am I the only guy that ever does that? And that's exactly what the children of Israel were doing. And so that's why when we come into the beginning part of this, we think about, man, as Elijah brings the challenge, it's easy for us to step back and think about how evil Ahab was and how, how evil Jezebel was and forget that the children of Israel were a lot like we are. That we oftentimes know we should worship God fully and wholeheartedly, not just on Sundays, but also on Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays and Thursdays and Fridays and Saturdays. So Sunday's a carryover from a week of worship. It's not a change from a week that we forgot to worship. And so Elijah, and we're going to read it here in a few seconds, Elijah's big challenge to the children of Israel was to get off the fence. Was to get off the fence. To don't have one foot in the world and one foot in your worship of God. But to have both feet firmly planted in worship of God. Now you can still live in the world and worship God. You can still make money in the world and worship God. You can do all of those things. But what Elijah is saying, not only to them, but also to us, is, man, let's go all in, guys, and worship the one true God. Because the reality of it is, if you spend the rest of your life worshiping money, when you take your last breath here on this earth, money's not going to matter. And it's going to be silent, just like Bell is. If you spend all of your life pursuing position and power, when you come to the end of your life, your bell is going to be silent. Only God has something to say to you after you take your last breath here on this earth. And we all have to remember that.
And so let's pick it up and let's go into 1 Kings chapter 18. And man, as we think about the history and the background of, you know, Ahab and uh, Jezebel. So let's look at uh, 1 Kings chapter 18. I'll pick it up reading in verse 20. And, and this is kind of the challenge that, that is prevented, uh, that is presented, that, that um, Elijah showed up. Ahab called him the troubler of Israel. Elijah corrects Ahab, says, I'm not the troubler of Israel. You are. This whole, this whole drought, this lack of rain, it's all because of you. So he corrects him. Pick it up in verse 20. So Ahab sent word throughout all of Israel to assemble the prophets on Mount Carmel. So Elijah said, here's what I want you to do. Bring all your prophets of Baal, bring them to Mount Carmel. Verse 21 says, Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? That is the key. See, and for us guys, we need to understand that um, the key for us is not who is the president or who's the vice president. The key for us, you and I as believers, as people who are followers of God, people of the book, the key for you and I has nothing to do with uh, who's in charge in the Senate, who's in charge in the House, whether we have a 5-4 or 4-5 conservative slant or liberal slant in the Supreme Court. That has nothing to do with how you and I should live our lives. Does that make sense? And so that's notice that, that, that Elijah's already addressed Ahab. It is granted. He is a troubler of Israel. But the problem was the people. And that's where you and I need to understand that we can never expect revival to come from a politician. We can never expect revival in this country to come because good laws are passed. It's never going to happen because I will promise you, whatever good law gets passed these next couple of years, there will be 10,000 bad ones that come in the next 20 years. How many of you understand what I'm talking about? It's just going to happen. But that doesn't affect us. And so I love what Elijah did. He brought the prophets of Baal. He doesn't even address the prophets of Baal first. He's got Ahab and, and, Jer and Jezebel there. He doesn't even address them. He addresses the people. He says, how long will you waver between two opinions? So let me ask you a question, guys. How long will you waver between two opinions? How long will I waver between two opinions? before I get completely sold out to God with my time and my talent and my energy and my resources and my influence, how long will I waver between two opinions? Will I say I'm all in? Will I say I'm ready to go? Or will I say no? And so that's the question is, how long will you waver between two opinions? He says, if the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Bell is God, follow Him. But the people said nothing. They were mum. Kind of like a Sunday morning, huh? Every once in a while, it'd be good as a pastor for y'all just to shout out an amen. I mean, even if it's totally out of place, just lay one out there for the people. Man, there are times that I will say something that I know God made me say. And nothing. Crickets. Yeah, I know. Yeah, that's a good, real good point, Ron. I need to back away from that. But, you know, that, that is true. And he says, man, how long will you waver between two opinions? If God is God, serve Him. If Baal is God, serve Him. But the people said nothing. Then look at verse 22. Then Elijah said to them, I am the, I, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left. Now, let me just stop you right there. We're going to see as we roll forward with Elijah. There is always, first of all, Elijah's wrong. Okay. Elijah may feel that way, but he's wrong. 
If you go look earlier, remember I just told you, this is the reason why I told you, that Obadiah had protected and saved and cared for a lot of the prophets so Jezebel didn't kill them. If you go to the next chapter over, when Elijah is running from Jezebel, right after he defeats her here, he runs. How many of you remember the story? And he goes off and he gets isolated and he gets alone and he's sitting there saying, God, just kill me. How many of you remember that story? If you remember here, Warren Samuels taught a, a few weeks ago. And, and, and he says, I alone am left. And God says, you are not. I've got 7,500 more just like you. All right? So here's the point in that. Elijah may have felt alone, but he isn't. You and I need to understand that there are times, and I hear people say this, I just kind of feel like I'm the only one that's standing for my faith. You're not. Hey, guys, if you want to feel like you're the only one standing your faith, go to some of these countries where Christianity is shrinking, not because people are dying of old age. You want to talk about standing alone, that's standing alone. But Elijah had this mindset, I alone am left. Now, he, he was definitely alone right there in his season, in his space, and God wanted to use Elijah in a powerful way. He says, I alone am left in the Lord's prophets. He says, but Baal has 450, so the odds are uh, 1 to 450. He says, get two bulls for us. Let all of Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood. But let them sit and then let them set it on fire. But don't set it on fire. And he goes, I will prepare the other altar. I'll put wood on it, but I won't set it on fire. Then you call out to your God. You call out and you pray out to Baal. And I will call out in the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people all of a sudden said, okay, we'll go with that. All right. He started off, said, how long will you be on the fence? He said, if God is God, serve him. If Baal be God, serve him. They go, ah, I don't know. I kind of like to cover all my bases. You know, I'm willing to serve the one true God, but then they tell me every once in a while if I go off, offer an altar, and we're kind of an agrarian society, if I offer an offering to Baal, maybe I'll get some rain and my crop will be a little better. So I'm going to go ahead and get in both tents. I'm going to worship the one true God. I'm going to pay my tithes every once in a while. Then I'm going to worship Baal. It's not going to hurt anything, right? They didn't say anything. But then he said, how about this? Let's get two bulls, create two altars, get some wood, but don't set it on fire. Let's cry out to the God. The God who shows up by fire, that's the one we'll worship. Everybody said, yeah, let's do that one. All right? That's exactly, guys, that's exactly what you and I would have done. How many of you know that? Fire, I'm in. Right? That's exactly what we would have done. And, and let me tell you what. Some of you are doing it in your hearts right now. You're never going to tell the guy next to you. You know that you worship at the altar of power or privilege or money or something like that. And I say, how long will you waver between two opinions? And you kind of nod your head yes, but you know the reality of it is you're chasing the buck more than you're chasing God. And we all do it. And we all do it. But there comes a time when God shows up in our lives and sometimes what god does is he shows up and burns up what we've been chasing we've got no choice but to worship him my encouragement to you is don't ever let it get to that space and place in your life where you've got to turn to god because you've got nothing left you want to turn to god when you've got everything left that's when you want to turn to god and let God use you and your family and your future and everything about you. And so if, if the, there, there's kind of the challenge. Now let's look at the contest. And I love this. Um, first pro, false prophets go first. So 
Uh, Elijah said, all right, you, you guys, you guys are the visitors. You go first. And Elijah said, verse 21, uh, said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls, prepare it first. And um, since there are many of you, y'all can get it done. And all through here, he's kind of kind of picking on him. He says, there's a lot of you guys. Y'all, y'all cut it up. Y'all put it down. Call on the name of your God. Uh, but do not light the fire. So look at verse 26. So they took the bull. Uh, they had been given. They prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us. They shouted all the more. Baal, answer us. But there was no response. No one answered. And then they danced. That was probably an amazing sight, seeing a bunch of dudes out there dancing. And then at noon, listen to this, and this is okay for the man of God to do, Elijah began to taunt them a little bit. I am not opposed to a little Jesus taunting, okay? If you ever need to pick on someone because God is winning, feel free to go ahead. Just wait till noon. That's biblical. All right, don't ever taunt anyone before noon. All right, got to wait until an afternoon game. That's, what you, that's right there in the Word. Martin Luther said, man, by conscience, be led by the Word. So at noon, he begins to taunt them, and I love this idea. And um, he, he says, hey, y'all need to shout louder. Surely uh, he is a God, right? Perhaps he is in deep thought. In other words, he's meditating. He says, you just need to shout loud and you need to wake him up. Or maybe he's busy. Or maybe he's traveling, or maybe he's sleeping, and you got to wake him up. Now, I want you to know, because this is a men's group in here, one of these Hebrew words, busy, means he might be on the pot. Do <laughs> you understand what I'm talking about? And we realize that could take a while for some guys, right? And so that's exactly what one, he's saying. And so Elijah, let me tell you what, is basically lacing him with sarcasm. He goes, hey guys, uh, maybe he's dozed off, he's on a journey, uh, he's indisposed, you know, just, just yell a little louder. And so what's their response? They begin to dance and cut themselves all the more, and they go on and on and on and on and on, and then nothing. And so now jump down to verse 30. So Elijah said, all right, you guys done? He says, hey, people, come here to me. Y'all been looking at those guys, you've seen nothing. They came to him and he prepared the altar of the Lord, just him, which had been torn down. In other words, he went back to the altar that had been torn down. More, more worship had been, was being do, done at Jezebel's uh, altar to the bells than it was to the one true altar to the one true God. It says, Elijah took 12 stones, reminding him of the 12 tribes uh, uh, of Jacob. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. Then he dug a trench around it. Uh, that was large enough to hold two seahs of seed. And he arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large jar, jars of water and pour the, pour the water on the offering and on the wood. Then he says, do it again. Then he says, do it a third time. And he ordered them and they did it a third time. And the water ran down over the altar and filled even the trench. So basically, Elijah's going all in. There, there is no reverse. There is no reverse. I always tell when uh, I'm getting prepared to, uh, uh, to perform a wedding ceremony when we're at the rehearsal that night, and they're all kind of dressed in these little you know, outfits or whatever, but what I usually know is that come the wedding day, the bride is going to be in a wedding dress with a train. Well, the one thing you know about a train is there is no reverse, right? 
And I tell the guy, I always joke with the guy at the altar, said, listen, now the first thing you're going to want to do when we take you and who gives this bride away into marriage, we're going to put the two of you together. You're going to want to charge up here. Now here's the problem. He goes, if you bring her up here too fast, she's going to step on this dress and everybody is going to laugh because there is no reverse in a wedding dress. And so I say, your first job is to slow down, to grab her arm, allow her to pick up the front of her dress, and make sure she gets up these stairs. Because if she falls, I want you to know the way this congregation of women who are going to be there, they're going to blame you. I said, so it's really on you, and there is no reverse. And there is a reality, guys, here for Elijah that what he has done right now, there is no reverse. He has laid it down for God. And guys, from time to time, God brings us to a place and a station in life where we need to put ourselves in a position of following God by faith where we leave ourselves no reverse. Does that make sense? That we say, I am in. I'm in. Has there ever been a time in your life when you have put yourself in such a position in front of people where there was no reverse and it was God be God. Now, we're not, we're not told that Elijah did this every day of the week. I don't encourage you to go do this every day of the week. This doesn't mean you should go, go to Vegas and take all your money and be all in on black. It's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about putting God to the test. I'm talking about you and your faith and your spirit and your commitment to say I'm all in. And so notice what happened as we pick it up reading in verse 36. So now we're at a place. And it says, at the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and he prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are the God in Israel, that I am your servant, and I have done all of these things at your command. He says, answer me, Lord, answer me, please, so these people will know that the Lord, you are God. Now, I even love that idea. That as Elijah is crying out, he's not even crying out for himself. He's saying, so these people will know. Man, I will tell you, as your pastor and as a staff, well, one of my greatest prayers is not that God would bless me and God would move in a way, but that God would show our congregation His power and His presence time and time again. Not so that I can built up, be built up, but so the people can be built up. That's what a pastor is supposed to do. My staff will tell you I use the word pastor all the time, and I like the idea that the word for pastor is shepherd, someone who's with the sheep, someone who loves the sheep, someone who cares for the sheep. And I love what Elijah does. It's very pastoral. His prayer there is, God, burn up this altar, not so that everybody knows that I'm the best prophet, but so that the people would know you are God. Do you all notice the difference there? God, when you ask God to bless you, don't ask God to bless you so you can shove a lot of money in your pocket or you can get more letters out by your name on your business card, but so that people around you and your sphere of influence would know He is the one true God. And that's the prayer that Elijah prayed, and I love it. He said, answer me, verse 37, answer me, O Lord, so these people will know that you are the Lord your God, and that you are turning their hearts back to you again. And then look at verse 38. It says, Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice and the wood and everything else. And when the fire burned up the wood and the sacrifice and everything else, then notice what happened. All the people, they fell prostrate and cried before the Lord, saying, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Then Elijah commanded, 
All of them. He says, stand up, seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let them get away. So what's the point there? Now, if you follow the story on down, they took them all the way down to the valley of Kishon and they killed them and slayed all the prophets of Baal there. Now, what's the point there? I'm not recommending you go kill a bunch of guys. But I am recommending that if there are some things in your life that keep drawing you away, that keep leading you astray, if you are going to stay fully and completely committed to God, you're going to have to deal with them and get rid of them. See, these prophets, had you let them linger around, they would have eventually gotten the ear of the people back. Right? They would have begun to draw the, draw the hearts of the people back. They'd have begun to say, well, you know, we probably could have done better. And so for us guys, if we are going to not be like the children of Israel, wavering between two opinions, once we put both feet in God's camp and we say, I'm serving Him, then sometimes what you have to do is sever ties from those things that constantly draw you away. In 1 Kings 18, that meant they killed the prophets of Baal. Or the people you're listening to, people you hear that are constantly causing you to draw your devotion away from God towards something else. If so, we need to stop. But more importantly, guys, when we think about throwing down the gauntlet, and we've talked about a bunch of things, one of the things that we have to say no to are those false ideas and false notions that slip into our faith that are not founded in the Word of God. And then the second thing is, once we, like the children of Israel, say, I'm both feet in, we've got to sever ties from the past. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these guys. Enjoy just laughing and cutting up and uh, just celebrating. God, I, I know these guys, they do have a heart for you, Lord. And God, we all do, truthfully. But there is also a sense that we oftentimes are much like the people and the children of Israel, that our hearts are wavering between two opinions. God, I pray for men in this room that uh, they would make a choice today. They'd make a choice today to say, I'm all in. I'm all in in your faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.